Thank you very much indeed, Ian, and uh, thank you, Silvana, for uh, inviting me back to Argentina. Uh, it's a delight to be back here again, not only for the enormous stakes and the wonderful Malbec, but also to meet old friends again and uh, just get used to, uh, to being back here and to remind myself of what an intellectually active and stimulating organization ESOP is. So it's a real pleasure uh, to be back here and to be involved with you again, particularly <clears throat> as the theme of the conference is one that's very dear to my own heart. Active learning, independent learning, what do we do in schools that builds, honors, respects young people's ability to be active and independent learners? <clears throat> Let me start with a little story. A few years ago, I was running a series of workshops for the football coaches for the English Premier League football clubs. You can tell it was a few years ago because I'm going to be talking about a young squad of footballers from Sunderland Football Club. So we were gathered at the Liverpool facility. The academy is where the promising young boys and girls uh, go to have their football skills developed, but also they do their homework there. Uh, they do their schoolwork there. They're much more motivated to do their mathematics and their English when they're doing it in the context of a football club uh, than they do when they're doing it back home. So we're doing this workshop, and there is to be a demonstration coaching session from a group of about 14, 12-year-olds from the academy at Sunderland. They've come across the Pennines in a minibus to do this session for us. Their coach, a man called Elliot Dickman, sets the boys up, these were only boys in these days, sets the boys up to do a training exercise. Some boys in a circle in the middle, some in a bigger circle around the outside. If you have the ball in the outside, you have to pass it to one of your teammates on the opposite circle and not be captured by the circle in the middle. And the rule is that when you receive the ball, you're only allowed to touch it twice before you kick it to someone else. So there's some pressure. The ball comes to you, you trap it, you can move it, and then immediately you have to pass it again. So he gets the boys ready to do this and then says to the rest of us, all the youth coaches from Arsenal and Chelsea and Southampton and Manchester City and Manchester United and so on and so on, we're watching. The boys start by doing what they'd been told. They do the exercise that, that Elliot had set for them. After about three or four minutes, they started to call to each other about whether they were finding this exercise too easy, too hard, or just right. Just right is the learning zone. Just right is when you're finding it difficult, you can't do it 100%, but you have enough of a grasp of what you're doing to make progress. Too easy, and you're wasting your time. Why would you bother to do something that you can do 100% of the time? Too difficult, and you're wasting your time. 
why would you bother to do something that you can't grasp, that you can't get any handle on at all, that you're not making any progress? So the boys are checking with each other and they decided that the exercise that they'd been given was too easy. So without any reference to their coach, they decided that they would change the rules and make it harder for themselves. So now the rule was they were only allowed to have one touch before they trapped the ball and then immediately pass before they caught it. Were these boys active learners? Were they active because they were running around? Were they active because they had a physical football, which was the object of their activity? Or were they active because they were thinking? Were they active because they were co-creators of their learning experience? Were they active because they had previously been coached to develop the ability to coach themselves? Could you do the same thing in a maths lesson? Do you? Is it your normal practice to offer a range of difficulty that your students can choose so that they can choose the one that gets them in the learning zone? Do they understand that if they choose one that's so easy that they can get 10 out of 10 or 20 out of 20 without effort, they're wasting their time? Do their parents understand that a page of ticks in a neat textbook is not the point? Because you can get that page of ticks without having learned anything. You might be able to do it all already. Are they active learners because we've given them the ability to self-regulate, to be involved, to be collaborators in the design of their own learning so that they can maximize the amount of learning that happens? Are we familiar, are we comfortable as teachers with beginning to share more and more control for what happens in the classroom with the learners themselves? And that's what the learning power approach is. It's a worldwide network, an informal network of research and development organizations, individual schools, university researchers, consultants, entrepreneurs, working on developing forms of teaching and learning which progressively, systematically, not only help young people to be able to do their mathematics and their English and their Spanish and their geography and their history, but in the process, they are learning to take over the functions of their own teacher. They're learning to become more active, more responsible, more independent in the way they engage with their education. That's one understanding, that's my understanding of what is so interesting and so significant about the idea of active learning. It doesn't mean running around, it doesn't mean being noisy, it doesn't 
necessarily mean working with physical material. It's about a state of mind which we either permit, invite, and strengthen in our learners, or which we prohibit because we feel like good old-fashioned teachers that it's our job to do everything. And this is the shift, the shift that's going on in many different organizations, the shift that's going on in the expeditionary learning schools, in the cultures of thinking approach of Ron Richart, in the habits of mind approach of Art Costa, in the building learning power approach that I have been associated with in the UK and other countries around the world, in philosophy for children, which Will, who's Will you'll be hearing from later, has been much involved in developing. Many people are coming together now to behind this school of thought which says if we have a little bit of courage and a clear purpose we can shift the nature of our classrooms, we can shift the nature of our teaching so that we are encouraging systematically our students to become less reliant on us less reliant for knowledge, less reliant for design, less reliant on evaluation of their learning. Because when they leave school, they will need to be able to do these things for themselves. And it doesn't help them if we have been over busy, over zealous in doing all the designing, and the troubleshooting, and the explaining, and the evaluating for them. If we do that too much, we disable them as learners because we deprive them of opportunities to learn how to do these things for themselves. And when they go on to college, when they go on to university, when they go into the world of work, when they move out into the big wide world of adulthood, they will no longer be accompanied by a busy, caring teacher telling them what they need to do to close the gap between their current performance and the desired level of achievement. They're going to need to be in charge of that for themselves, aren't they? Obviously. This is not rocket science. As George Bush once said of Cape Canaveral, it's not rocket science. So that's the shift that I want to talk a little bit about this morning. <clears throat> what kind of equipment are we helping young people develop if they are to grow in their ability to be active, independent, mature, and responsible learners? So here is the aim as I see it. Our aim is to develop all students, all students, not just high achievers, not just the ones are right at the bottom of the attainment level, all, all students will need this, as powerful learners and problem solvers, able to re ready, willing and able to des choose, design, research, pursue, troubleshoot and review learning for themselves, just like those 12-year-olds from Sunderland were doing on that football pitch. But we want youngsters to be doing it in their art lessons, in their history lessons 
in their personal, social and health education lessons, in their mathematics lessons, in their science lessons, building their independence of us. And to be do this, doing this alone and with others, and in school and beyond. Because one of the shifts that is happening here is for us to evaluate the purpose and the success of our education by focusing on what I call the far horizon. Are we preparing them well to be flourishing when they're 40 or 50 years old? And not be satisfied with the near horizon of their A-levels and their international baccalaureate, their school-leaving certificate. Are we thinking big enough and deep enough and long-term enough about the function, the purpose and the effect of what we're doing in school. The dual purpose, of course, is to raise their levels of attainment in school, not to neglect that, but to do that in a way that builds their love of learning, their ability to be proactive, to manage learning for themselves as they go along, and to build these qualities gradually. There's no point in just suddenly withdrawing all the support and saying, oh, you've got to be active independent learners now, go do it. We have to help them get there. We have to teach in a way that gradually withdraws the amount of support, the amount of structure that we're designing for them so that at a manageable rate, they are able to develop, to acquire the abilities to perform these functions for themselves as they go along. So this is the learning power approach, which sees active learning and independent learning as what's going on at the level of design, at the level of control of their own thinking and their own learning. What does it take for young people to, to have these abilities? Well, there is a lot of agreement. People are beginning to agree a lot about what it is that we need to be trying to cultivate. Their ability to be curious and adventurous. I was in a school, an independent school in the UK about a year ago, where the school I loved, the school motto. What's the motto? Do your schools have a motto, have a little phrase in Latin or Spanish or English? It doesn't matter. Often they don't mean anything, but this school was excellent. Their motto was, live adventurously. Mm. Now that has some juice to it, doesn't it? Live adventurously, not recklessly, but adventurously. We know that curiosity is the most powerful stimulus for learning. Yet, in many traditional schools, traditional good schools, we completely ignore children's own curiosity. Do we say to them when they arrive in their lessons, what would you like to learn about? What questions do you have in your mind? Some people do, some teachers do, not all of them. Why would we squander that resource? Why would we set out on the learning journey without filling the tank with the petrol of curiosity before we set out? Simple, simple things. Determination, tolerate, being able to tolerate mistakes. You're all familiar with this one. 
Lots of people are interested in grit and resilience and growth mindset. These things are very familiar. Most of you would put your hand up and say, yes, we'd like our children to be more resilient. So would I. What does resilient mean? It means to stay intelligently engaged with something that is harder than you thought it was going to be. Would you like more of that with your children? Some children don't. Some of them have developed a mental virus. It's called the 10-second rule. They'll have a go for something for 10 seconds, and if they can't do it quickly within 10 seconds, they'll assume they won't be able to do it, so they'll drift off and muck about and chat to their neighbor. Do you have any kids who have the 10-second rule? They weren't born with that. It's a bit of malware that got into their brains. Where did that come from? The idea that if you can't do it fast, you can't do it at all. If you can't do it quickly, you're not intelligent. Hmm? Where did they get that idea from? From their mums and dads? Might they have spent time in a classroom with a teacher whose behavior to the children signaled the fact that the teacher thought that to be a bright and successful student precisely meant answering every question correctly, fast, all the time, without making mistakes. Do you have that mood in your classroom? Do you recognize it in your schools? Because that's feeding that malware, isn't it? That idea, because it means if you can't do it fast, you think you're stupid. Whereas, of course, any learning worthwhile, the learning that those young footballers are doing, takes time, requires mistakes, takes effort. Learning is getting better at, and therefore presupposes not yet perfect at. Collaboration and talk. The most powerful stimulus for the development of metacognition. You've all heard about metacognition, haven't you? Metacognition is developing the ability to talk to yourself productively about your learning. Ah, oh, now how am I going about this? What am I doing? Is there another way I could be doing this? Am I maybe making some mistakes here? Am I making some assumptions which are unnecessary? How do you learn that voice? You learn it through interaction with other people. Vygotsky said, what we first experience in interaction with others then becomes part of our onboard mentality. First, we are intermental. Our minds develop in collaboration and conversation with other people. So the idea that the good classroom is the silent classroom, the good classroom is the classroom where 30 little heads are busy looking at their own work on their own without conversation. It's a 19th century idea, possibly slightly 20th century, but certainly not 21st century. So do you have enough productive talk amongst your students? Do you encourage it? Do they talk more than you do? Do you know what the balance, what the proportion is of teacher talk and student talk in your classroom? The research shows that most teachers are deluded about that balance. They think 
teachers think they talk less and the children talk more than they actually do. So be careful what your first answer was to that question. Are you coaching their ability to talk productively? Do you talk to them about good quality talk? Do you run little workshops with your students to build their understanding, their capacity to be good listeners of each other? Is that part of your job to act like a coach, to coach their ability, to develop their ability to talk well? Because if we just say, oh yes, I do lots of group work with my children, you know that most, a lot of group work is a waste of time. It tends to be dominated by people who are more confident or more incontinent verbally. There's a lot of what's called social loafing goes on in groups. People just take an easy ride. Sometimes the way kids interact is not productive, is not respectful, is not precise, is not positive. So can you function like Elliot Dickman? Can you be their coach of listening? their coach of talking. Do you have a poster on the classroom wall which you've given the children time to develop with lots of sentence starters? What you said makes me wonder, dot, dot, dot. I'm not sure I agree, dot, dot, dot. I think perhaps we could, dot, dot, dot. Do you have little training devices so that they are gradually getting better and better, more productive, more focused about the kinds of conversations that we're having. Do you see yourself as a mind coach and not just someone who delivers knowledge and checks how well they've received it? Building their ability to be reflective and self-evaluative. Do you coach? Have you coached the development of your children's ability to give and take feedback well from each other. Have you talked to them about that? People can have two responses to feedback. One is called cognitive appreciation. Oh, that's really interesting. Thank you. That's helpful. That's going to enable me to get better. My next draft is going to be an improvement. Great. That's very generous of you for your perception, for your input. The other reaction to feedback is emotional reactivity. She's been mean to me about my drawing. She doesn't like me. I'm not going to play with her. She's mean to me. So could you talk to your children, whether they're five years old or 17 years old, about how to move, how useful it would be to help yourself move from the emotionally reactive to the cognitively appreciative. Anybody could do that, couldn't we? It's easy, it's not, this is not complicated stuff. Are you helping the children to develop? In England, there's a little teaching strategy that teachers often use. It's used in something called assessment for learning. When the children are giving each other feedback, it's called two stars and a wish. Have you come across two stars and a wish? It means when you're giving your partner feedback, you have to say two nice things before you give them the more slightly critical thing. Two stars. 
I loved the way you described the main character. I thought your use of adjectives was very interesting. And I'm wondering if it might have been even better if some of your sentences had been a little shorter. Two stars and then the wish. So I was in Australia a little while ago and someone was telling me over coffee that they used that idea of the children using two stars and a wish slightly differently. She said, oh, God. I, we use the two stars and a wish in my classroom. But I sat down with the children and I talked to them about this thing you were talking about, about not being emotionally reactive but being cognitively appreciative. And they understood, they're only seven years old, but they understood that it was better to be in the cognitive appreciative mode than the emotionally reactive mode because they'd be more resilient, they'd learn faster if they did that. So we had a conversation, me and my year threes, and they decided that, okay, they'd start with two stars and a wish. We talked about why do you need the two stars? And they agreed that it's because you, because you need to be reassured, you need to be plumped up by your, by your friend before you get the critical thing so you don't get too upset. So they decided that if they were going to become more robust little learners, they could perhaps start with the two stars and then see if they could manage with only one star. Because they didn't need so much reassurance because their reaction was being retrained. And then he said after about three weeks after that we had another conversation. It was all going very well with the one star and a wish. I sat the children down and said, what do you think? And they said, oh, bugger the stars. Let's just go straight for the wish. <laughs> These are children who are becoming more active and independent learners because their teacher has coached them to be. You could do that, couldn't you? Could you? Have you done it already? Some of you, some of you will have. But maybe some of you, it just never occurred to it, never occurred to see yourself as that coach. If you're teaching high school English, have you run a little workshop? You can get, you can see a version of this. I might show it in the, my workshop later on, where the children, these 15-year-olds, are speed dating each other. They have a short period to sit opposite each other, read each other's work, write some written feedback comments, and then give your, your partner comments face to face. Very specific, very targeted. I'm only looking at your use of quotations. I'm only looking at whether your opening paragraph is engaging. I'm only looking at your use of facts and statistics. The teacher is a coach. The teacher is training them. And they have to learn to give this, give and take this information, to give it in a way that is productive and specific and respectful, and to take it without becoming defensive or reactive. Anybody could do that. Anybody could devote a little bit of time, couldn't they, in their lessons, to building that capacity, to augmenting their ability to be independent, to do it for themselves. 
to be focused and mindful, to be imaginative and playful, to be rigorous and careful, to be organized and methodical. All of these things, if we think about it, we can float to the surface in our classroom, not just say, oh, they always forget to bring their PE kit, or they never have a pencil. How do we coach their ability to be more organized? And more importantly, how do we get the parents to understand that they should be doing less for their children rather than more? Parents who insist on carrying their perfectly able-bodied children's bag into school, having packed it for them. They are caring, but misguided, aren't they? And we are caring, but misguided, if we rescue children too quickly from difficulty. Imagine in your classroom, a child is beginning to look upset or distressed because she can't do what you've asked her to do. She's sitting there looking miserable with her hand up like this. Doesn't even have the energy to hold it up properly. It's like this. And you go over, you're on your way, you're walking over to her, and as you're walking over to her, you're rehearsing three or four different options that you might have as to how you react to her and what the effect of different reactions might be. Just with your neighbor, just for one minute, just this brainstorm two or three different options as you approach. How are you going to interact with a child who's, on, who's finding something difficult and is on the brink of upset? How do you engage with them? One minute with your neighbor. Okay, thank you very much. So you could say, oh, never mind, sweetheart, don't worry about that for now. Come and sit with me and let's read a book. You're respecting her distress and you're rescuing her from her distress. Is that a good message to give her? You could say, okay, Gabriella, I know you're finding this difficult, but I wonder if you could do this for me. Could you just try and struggle on your own just for another two minutes? And then if you're really, really stuck, then I'll come and give you a hint or help you. Could you do that for me? That gives a different message, doesn't it? That message is empowering for Gabriella. Can she stretch, strengthen her ability to be resilient? She doesn't need a whole lot of fancy growth mindset posters on the wall of the classroom. She doesn't need like a parrot to have learned to say, I can't yet. Just in the course, the normal course of a lesson, you're interacting with her in a way that makes a slightly optimistic assumption about what she might be able to do for herself. And if in those next two minutes, Gabriella has choked back her distress, has looked again at the problem, 
and has found a way of being able to make progress, she'll look up at you with a smile and say, I did it, miss. And if you jumped in too quickly, you might have deprived her of the satisfaction of having done it for herself. And you might have removed, you might have neglected an opportunity for her to experience the joy of the struggle. The joy of the struggle. You know that you're making progress, that you have a room full of active and independent learners. I'll tell you how to test. Give the class something difficult to do, something they can't immediately do quickly. Let them work at it in twos and threes for five minutes. You might give them a poem that you've cut up into different sections and they're all muddled up and they have to try and work out what the right sequence is, for example. And you give them some time to have a go at it and then you say, okay, that's great, lots of interesting talk, lots of good ideas going on there. Would you like me to tell you the answer? And the class with one voice say, no, sir. We think we're going to get there. We think we're nearly there. We're halfway there. Give us another few minutes. Do you have that attitude? Do you have it enough? Do you have it in maths? Are you consciously, deliberately working on building that resilience and that resourcefulness? Not in what you say, but in how you say it. Not in what you put on the walls, but in how you behave, how you react to your students when they're finding learning difficult. So this is how we see what's going on in classrooms. That every lesson, all the time, learning is going on at three different layers. Three different kinds of learning are happening in your classroom. The first is the transfer, the build-up of knowledge and comprehension. The second is the development of skills and literacies. Numerical literacy, digital literacy, historical literacy, scientific literacy, and so on. The third is the development of broader attitudes and dispositions towards learning itself and towards themselves as learners. These are constantly in play in your classroom. I think of it like this. Imagine that this picture is the cross-section of a river. It's not a very good drawing. Someone pointed out to me the other day that it looks much more like an old-fashioned English trifle. If, I don't know if you know this dessert. Do you know it? Yeah? But bear with me. Can, see, look at it as a cross-section of a river. So on the surface of the river is the knowledge and comprehension. Fairly visible, fast-flowing, fast-changing. Uh, here comes a bit of chemistry, ionic and covalent bonding. Oop, now, next hour, here we're going to do the irregular verbs in French. Oop, now we're going to do a little bit of South American history. Whoop, now we're going to listen to a Beethoven symphony and try and work out something about it. Little packages of knowledge bobbing along on the surface of the river. Just below the surface of the river, 
the skills and literacies that are being developed. Slightly slower to develop, but still fairly, we're fairly conscious, fairly visible of the development of these literacies. But down at the bottom of the river, on the riverbed, is where these attitudes and dispositions are being formed. It's darker down at the bottom of the river. It's harder to see the effect that we're having. And the effect is slower to develop. Drip, 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 day after day after day. These attitudes are being influenced and formed and shaped by the way we behave in the classroom. It's like we're developing, we create an undertow in the classroom. Not conscious, but a kind of magnetic pull, either towards students becoming more passive, more compliant, more docile, more timid, more extrinsically motivated, only interested in the mark, not interested in the learning itself. We could be creating that undertow, that current that pulls youngsters in that direction. Or we could be creating an undertow, an ethos, an implicit expectation in the classroom that children are becoming gradually more active, more proactive, more adventurous, more imaginative, more collaborative, more reflective, more able to evaluate and correct learning for themselves. And when we think about what we do as teachers, I think there are three overlapping subsets of what we do that are important at these three different levels of learning. At the level of accurate knowledge and comprehension, the traditional virtues of the teacher as the good teller, the good explainer, the good asker of diagnostic questions, becomes important. Of course those skills are important. At the level of skills and literacies, it's the nature of the activities. In the development of any skill, skills develop by being given activities that are just a bit harder than what you can currently do. So we're designing activities that make group work slightly harder, that make the chemical concept a bit harder that gradually stretch and develop your ability to cope with those. But down at the bottom of the river, there are other things that are making a difference to whether we're creating the undertow towards dependency and passivity or the undertow towards independence and activity. And those are the things that we sometimes have not been so conscious of, not so deliberate about in our work as teachers. And therefore, without realizing it, we might have been creating the rip towards dependency. So that, in some schools that I've worked in, by the time children get to fifth form or sixth form, years 11 or 12, they have become effectively mute They don't ask any questions anymore, except one question. Please, miss, is this going to be on the test? They have shrunk as learners. Not expanded, not strengthened, but shrunk as learners. Now, how did that come about? Did we do that? 
unintentionally? Did we contribute to the development of that passivity and extrinsic motivation? If I'm right about this, then the consequence is that we can't avoid influencing the undertow. We are active players, whether we know it or not, whether we like it or not, by the way we respond, by how quickly we rescue, by the design of our activities. We are influencing what's going on at the riverbed. Those slower, darker, but most precious outcomes of education that are steering them along. So we have a choice. You can teach history in a way that encourages an uncritical attitude to text. When I was at school, my teachers treated the history textbook as if it was the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. Because they never created the slightest possibility that it could be otherwise. But it's perfectly possible for you to get your students to engage with the history textbook or with a document in a more critical way. In a way that says, hold on a minute, this must be one perspective. What could we tell? I'm going to set you an activity. You're going to work in pairs and I want you to read very carefully pages 56 to 67 in your history textbook and your job is to come back with what you think you can discern about the cultural perspective of the textbook writer. Couldn't you? Anybody could do that. Any average group of 13-year-olds could engage with that question. Actually, they'd probably quite enjoy it as an exercise in critical literacy, as an exercise in reading. You'll set them a bit of writing to do and it could either be just a dull, straightforward recounting, factual recounting of that historical period. Or you could say, having discussed this historical event or historical period, take three characters who were significant players in that event and write through the eyes of each of three of them. Write a different version of history. What would it have been like, felt like? What would have been going through your mind if you had been Queen Elizabeth? And then do it again as if you'd been Mary Tudor. And then do it again as if you'd been Lord Burley, the Lord Chancellor in the Elizabethan court. Now you're using history as an exercise machine for developing empathy, aren't you? for developing the ability, the inclination, to adopt multiple perspectives. This slide here is a group of boys who are doing that piece of writing. To help them do it, their teacher, they're year sevens. Their teacher has got them to make, cut out of cardboard to make for themselves what they call their empathy specs. They have the magical property that when you put your empathy specs on, they enable you to see what the world looks like through someone else's eyes. It's a nice idea, isn't it? I think Google are working on it. <laughs> it's what we call a bit of serious play, 
what the Lego people call serious play on behalf of the teacher. It's a little pedagogical device that foregrounds the salience of what they're working, which learning muscle they're working on stretching. So you could use history as a way of either building credulity or as a way of building empathy or as a way of building critical reading. It depends on the activity that we design. It depends on our intention for the students. Because that skeptical reading, I would have thought, was a really useful thing for young people to have in the 21st century, wouldn't you? You not want your 12-year-old daughter when she's online to have a skeptical attitude to what she's reading? Is this really true? Who's telling me this? In whose interest is it that I believe this? Wouldn't you want? Like it's a bit of onboard safeguarding that I would like to have installed, a little subroutine in my children's minds, my grandchildren's minds, to keep themselves safe. I wonder if this person is who they say they are. Could I ask this person a question that they would only know the answer to if they genuinely were another 13-year-old girl and not a 56-year-old paedophile? Wouldn't that be useful? Not cynical, but an appropriate healthy skepticism. And we could use our history textbook as a vehicle to exercise that capacity, couldn't we? If we are interested in what's going on in the riverbed, if we are conscious of the effect that we might be having as either building active independent learners or reducing active independent learners, and so on. You could teach adding fractions in a way that builds students' enjoyment and appreciation of being imaginative and experimental and trying out possibilities. Or you could teach fractions in a way that builds their fear of making mistakes. Couldn't you? It's our choice. But we don't realize we have a choice unless we become interested in the riverbed unless we become more conscious of the effect that we might be having on whether they're active learners or not. You could teach a science lesson on magnets in a way that either builds, respects, strengthens students' curiosity, or in a way that undermines their curiosity. When I was taught science at school, we did experiments, but we only did them half-heartedly because we knew very rapidly from experience that we would almost certainly do the experiment wrong. And that what really mattered was, we, and we would just wait for it, was when the teacher told us at the end of the lesson what we should have seen. What the right answer was. So we didn't bother much with going through the motions. We never really learned why you had to wash your test tube three times before you used it. It was just something that we were told to. We didn't discover and explore for ourselves why we should be doing that. You can teach reading in a way that builds reading for pleasure, builds pleasure in reading. Or you can teach reading in a way that makes reading an anxious drudgery, an unpleasant activity for youngsters, can't you? Certainly in England, lots of young people, lots of well-intentioned teachers pressed by the government have taught reading in a way that has made lots of children anxious and aversive to reading. It's raised, there's been research not long ago, 
that shows that that effect, that obsessing about levels of literacy, has the effect of raising literacy levels slightly and damaging pleasure in reading significantly. Yet, if we're interested in the far horizon, what effect is this going to be having on these young people when they're 40 and 50 years old? We know also from research that pleasure in reading is a powerful predictor of success in life. It's a powerful predictor of empathy, of whether you have the good grace not to rush to judgment to someone else, but to enjoy inhabiting someone else's world. That's what literature does for you. It broadens your mind like travel. It makes you a more subtle, a more human thinker and interactor with the people around you because you've escaped from the egocentric attitude that your world is the world. So we can teach reading in a way that builds that vital preference, that vital disposition, or in a way that undermines it. And how do we do this? How do we cultivate these habits? What are, what are the things that teachers do that create the undertow, create that subtle pull in one direction or the other? It's mostly not explicit. It's mostly not what an English friend of mine in a recent blog has called those cheesy growth mindset posters. Will is going to be talking about this later on. Lots of teachers have put up the cheesy posters and thought that they'd done growth mindset. But growth mindset lives and breathes in the atmosphere of the classroom. Do we, are we making it safe? These are some of the basic principles. I'll go into these much more in my workshops. So the fundamental thing that we need to do is to make sure that our classrooms are safe places to be a learner. Not safe in the health and safety sense. Safe to be a learner, what does that mean? Safe to think, safe to get things wrong, safe to experiment, safe to hypothesize, safe to discuss. You know that no one is going to jump on you if your idea turns out not to be right. You know that mistakes are your friends, mistakes are the stepping stones, as they are for those young footballers on the road to competence, on the road to understanding. And you've left behind the idea that if you make mistakes, that some kind of a mistake is a shameful stigma on your record. There are some classrooms in which the use of erasers has become completely compulsive because students are so anxious about the idea of making mistakes that in the immediately they have to rub it out and like Stalin, rewrite the historical record in order to remove the shameful evidence of their fallibility. So if that's the case in your classroom, ban the bloody erasers for a bit. Do without them. Cultivate a different attitude to mistakes. Have a big display on the wall of the classroom. Mistake of the week. Do you have that? Do you have one? 
My friend Becky Carlson teaches five-year-olds. She has a conversation with them early on in the year in which they discuss what the difference is between a smart mistake and a sloppy mistake. Smart mistake is something that you tried or said to the best of your ability given what you knew. Sloppy mis smart mistakes are good. Sloppy mistakes are when you just didn't bother. So Becky's five-year-olds can tell you the difference between a smart mistake and a sloppy mistake, and they queue up to have their smart mistake celebrated. This is the smartest mistake of the week. Could you do that? What would the parents say? Hmm? Sometimes you have to cultivate what's going on at different layers, different levels in the classroom. So psychological safety, then into that world of psychological safety in which students are used to grappling, to struggling, to arguing, to learning, to experimenting, to tinkering, to drafting, to improving. Into that world, you toss irresistible challenges. Things that the students are going to find hard. Things that in order to solve them, they're going to have to be good discussants with their neighbors. They're going to have to develop their ability to be able to think and talk well. Which they're going to have to persevere with if they're going to make progress with it. So we don't make these things the objects of instruction. We design the atmosphere and the activities in the classroom so that students are drawn naturally into ways of engaging with challenge, with uncertainty, which stretch, naturally stretch and strengthen, broaden and deepen their ability to be active and independent learners. That's the way we do it. Then we encourage different types of conversation. We've already talked about the nature of the chat between children. We think about our own language and ways in which we, our language, the kinds of things that without even thinking we say to children, might be influencing the undertow in one direction rather than another. We shift our focus of assessment so that now we're focusing on not on attainment but on improvement. Have many of you done that yet? Lots of people. John Hattie is talking about that. Lots of people are talking about how to shift the way we test, the focus, so that children are proud of the progress that they're making, not ashamed of the fact that they're only 27th out of a class of 30. The first is called ipsative assessment, and it is much more motivating to be looking at yourself getting better than yourself being worse than other people. That might take a shift in school policy. You might have to have a structural think about that. You can shift the nature of the layout of the furniture and what you put on the walls. Those also carry powerful messages. And we can shift the extent to which we give students responsibility. We treat them as independent. You can create your classroom in the image of that football training session in which we are deliberately, gradually, appropriately stretching and strengthening young people's abilities to be active and independent. 
we have a dozen little choices every day, and in the workshops we'll go into these in more specific detail. Dozens of little choices that we may not have been conscious of before, but which you're conscious of now, which enable you to be a force for good, a force for long-term good in building active and independent learners. And if we do that, the results will go up. If we do that, we fit the turbocharger to our students' minds so that they will go faster and further in the learning of their physics and their chemistry and their English and their history. And more enjoyably, because they've discovered the joy of the challenge, because they're not afraid of feedback, because they're learning to be elegant discussants with each other, we will have equipped them for a life of learning. We will have paid attention not only to the near horizon, but, the, but to the far horizon of their education. And when we do that, we've earned the right to call ourselves a 21st century school. But not until. Thank you very much. <laughs>